Bob Bolander, uh, a test presentation from Bob Bolander. He uses 16-9 instead of 4-3 ratio on his presentation, so I need to run a test on that uh, after class to see how, how that shows up on the screen. <clears throat> and since I have a tendency to get distracted by teaching, I don't remember these things. So, not that you guys will remember either. But <laughs> right. have to dig the announcements out of the trash can. Well. They're lost. Okay, the main announcement that I can think of that we need is volunteers to help with the Chafer Conference, and that begins in three weeks, three weeks from yesterday. So uh, we're going to have sheets up for volunteers uh, to help out, and that will be uh, very, uh, very important to get things done uh, and all the different things in relation. I think uh, there's some who are coming to the church. Am I right tomorrow? No. To clean? Okay, and uh, so that that's we just have to start getting getting prepared for for those events. The other thing is we now have twenty seven on the Israel trip, and so we still have room for more. I know I was surprised yesterday. I mean, with the last two days we've had, I think four or five people who've signed up. So if you are thinking about it. Uh, it's getting close to the cutoff time. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when that will be, but um, uh, it has to do with uh, how many rooms we res we've reserved and if we can reserve some more and how many seats we have on airplanes and can we reserve some more and things like that. So if you are considering it, you need to make a decision. And this is going to be a great trip. We have a good-sized group. And I'm, I'm really excited about this and some of the things that are going on in relation to it. So um, we'll see how it all works out. Um, I think that's about it for, for those details. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, you can be, to make sure that you can be, or that you are spiritually prepared, walking by the Spirit, right relationship with the Lord. And that means that if necessary, confession of sins and silent prayer to the Lord. And then following that, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening to focus upon your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded that there's no problem in our life that you have not provided for, and that there's no situation that cannot be handled by your inerrant, infallible, sufficient word. Father, we're thankful that you guide and direct us in our lives, and that we might learn to trust you and to rely exclusively upon you for everything in our life. Father, we pray that tonight as we study about <clears throat> leadership and issues related to political leadership, we pray that you would challenge us, help us to think through what we study, and to be reminded of our responsibilities. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, let me see. Something here wasn't where it's supposed to be, so I'm going to move it. Tonight we're going to be in... First Samuel, or Second Samuel, chapter five, verse one. We may not get far beyond Second Samuel five one. We may not get through everything that I have. 
One of the things that is important right now in terms of application of Scripture is understanding our role and responsibility as Christian citizens of the United States. Starting today in Texas, so this doesn't apply yet to those of you who aren't in Texas, but it may apply in some other states, early voting is taking place, early voting for the primaries. And this, is, uh, this will take place for the next week or 10 days, this week and next week. And then on Tuesday, March the 6th, they will hold the primary. Why is March the 6th such a significant date? Alamo fell, that's right. Alamo fell. So it's a great reminder that, that men and women have given their lives for our freedom. And part of the responsibilities of our freedom is to exercise the franchise, as they say, which means to vote. You know, as I always say, vote early and vote often. This is a critical election year. I think every election, local, state, federal, for the rest of our lives is going to be a do-or-die election. Because the enemies of truth, the enemies of, of Christians, the enemies of the Constitution of this nation, which include a lot of politicians and a lot of citizens of this country because they have rejected the fundamental foundation of the Constitution. And <clears throat> I have been doing a lot of reading lately in different books that talk about the role of the Bible among, uh, for the founding fathers and the founding generation uh, in the late 18th century and how the Bible shaped the thinking of that generation. And in fact, there have been more than one historian, and I'm not talking about church historian or Christian historians, but there have been more than one historian in the mid part of the 20th century as they have examined uh, what the Founding Fathers wrote and what the Founding Fathers said, that the founding document of this nation is the Bible. And there's been a lot of discussion for most of my adult life as a, in a ministry as a pastor and as a student of church history in, uh, in both my master's and doctoral work at Dallas Seminary, tremendous controversy over the question, is America a Christian nation? And it's important to answer that question, and it's important what, how you use that. Is America a Christian nation in the sense of a theocracy? No. Is America a Christian nation in the sense that, that the Bible is, uh, forms our basis for government? Depends on how you nuance that. But the Bible shaped the thinking of the founding generation. It was as, as known to believer and skeptic alike as no book today is known by anyone. It was a book that was in every household. It was a book that was read in every household. It was a book that was so well known by every person who walked the streets of North America that when it was included in written, when scripture was included in written documents, they did not have to offset it as an insert. They did not have to put the scripture reference there. They did not have to tell people that this was from the Bible because the, the culture, the people, the society of the uh, colonies in the late 18th century was so familiar with the Bible that they didn't have to be told that these phrases, came, not only that they came from the Bible, but they didn't have to be told where they were to be found in the Bible. In fact, there was a a pastor, clergyman in Philadelphia, preached a, <clears throat> a sermon that was then printed, which was often the case during that time, and it was sent to Benjamin Franklin, who at that time was representing the uh, uh, the United States or the colonies, rather, in uh, in France. And he wrote back complimenting the clergyman on his sermon, asking permission to print it and to translate it so that it could be read on the continent. And in his letter he said, but I will have to revise it and to identify what the scriptural quotations are and insert their references so that the people in Europe will know that this is coming from the Bible. 
That is what set America off from the rest of the world. We were founded in many ways by clergymen. We were founded by uh, congregation members who transferred their churches somewhat almost in totality to North America. This was especially true of that group that we refer to as the Pilgrims. Uh, because of the fact that they were separatists from the Church of England. They were persecuted in England, and so they left England, and they went to uh, Holland, and then from Holland they came to uh, North America and missed their uh, (coughs) destination and landed in Massachusetts at what we know as Plymouth Rock uh, instead. But this was the foundation that they understood, and as they developed as as the uh, colonies, and came to that period that we refer to as the revolutionary generation, that period from approximately 1760 to 1800 or 1810, there's just a vast amount of literature that came out from your primary leaders, the people we think of as uh, the John Hancocks, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, uh, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, those were the upper tier the most influential, but you had a secondary tier of leaders and a tertiary tier of of leaders that were extremely influential because they were usually the men who were in the pulpits and the men who represented the the colonies colonists at a local local level, and they understood on the basis of a history of English common law that went back into the early Middle Ages that there were certain rights and privileges that came from God that were due to Englishmen. And this can be traced back to, um, for example, uh, Alfred the Great's Book of Dooms. In Saxon, the word doom meant law. It was his book of law, and it was modeled on Deuteronomy and Leviticus and various Old Testament passages and he read Hebrew. In fact, he translated Psalms into the uh, vernacular at the time. And there were others down through the history of Christianity in Britain that had a tremendous influence on people, translating the Bible into the vernacular, people like, like John Wyc- Wycliffe and later William Tyndale, whose, uh, <clears throat> whose translation of the Old Testament from the Hebrew and New Testament from the Greek became the foundation really for Uh, the language in every subsequent English translation. In fact, the words that are used even in modern translations are roughly 70% the same words that were used by William uh, William Tyndale in his translation. And his goal was uh, to print the Bible in the language of everyday people so that they could read it so that every plowboy in England knew as much about the Bible as the pastor in the pulpit. And that's what laid the foundation for for freedom in this nation. And it was an emphasis on the individual. They understood what we refer to as the first divine institution, the emphasis on personal responsibility, personal responsibility to God first and foremost, personal responsibility toward uh, your neighbors, Civic responsibility was part of it. Personal responsibility in terms of taking care of your family, in terms of work and labor. All of this flowed out of that understanding, but that, un- that understanding came directly out of the Bible. And so from that foundation came the idea of a representative republic, which would be self-governed that the citizens would be the ultimate authority under the authority of a body of laws that were embedded in the Constitution, but that it was the people who would vote and they would make such decisions. Now, it may surprise you, but you and I come out of a tradition that and many times did not believe that it was even spiritual or part of your responsibility as a Christian to vote, to participate in voting, or to be involved in government. That was the view of John Nelson Darby, who was the founder and systematizer of what we refer to as dispensational theology. He thought that that was 
was evil to try to that in his view it was all related to refining government and making it uh, it perfect. I dispute that understanding of what our involvement in government is all about. And as I've thought about this over the years, I've thought about how government in a sort of a historical sense developed. We understand that God instituted government, but if we think about it just in terms of the United States, we think about how did various government bodies, governing bodies, come into existence. And if you go back to this 18th century, 19th century, as America is expanding, you would find that a group of people would come and they would settle in an area. And as soon as they settled, they would have a center or a town or a village where they would, uh, begin, they would mark out the plots and they would divide up the land. And, that would, and they might own farms and ranches surrounding it, but it was that town or that village that was the center of life. Well, once you start getting you know, 25, 30, 50, 100 people together, you have to start making certain important decisions, just basically administrative decisions. You have to decide how, what you're going to do to take care of all of the garbage that everybody produces. You have to decide what you're going to do with, with, in terms of sanitation. You build 20 or 30 houses, you have to decide how you're going to lay out your plan, where your streets are going to be. Uh, when it rains and the streets get all muddy, you have to decide how you're going to deal with them. You have to decide how you're going to uh, dig wells that are of benefit to the community, how you're going to maintain uh, potable water, and all of these things have to do with the benefit of this community working together. And sooner or later, you realize you can't just pull everybody together in the church meeting house to take a vote on everything. You have to choose certain people who are going to be responsible in each of these different areas. So that, at that point, you become uh, voters. You become self-governing. And the reason I say that is because I often have heard and read of people like Darby, and there are others who say it's wrong. When you look at, when they're looking at, as Darby was, at the government of Britain at that time in the 1830s, 1840s, he could look at many things that were wrong or distasteful and that perhaps Christians should not be involved with. One wonders what he would think today with our president's tweets and some of the other things that are said. When we think, if you think of politics, if you think of politics at a national level, and what is going on in Washington, D.C., and dealing with certain international things, you could come away and just say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That is corrupt. It's terrible. I just don't want to be mired in that kind of muck. But see, that's why I started with on the small level, because when you live in a community, and even a, a large city like Houston, you know that there has to be a government. God instituted government, we know that. But there has to be an election of people who are going to oversee the streets, fixing the potholes, taking care of the sewage, taking care of the utilities, all of these different things, and choosing wise people of integrity to make those uh, decisions and to oversee those things for us is part of politics, and it takes it right down to the grassroots level. It's not just what's going on in Austin or what's going on in Washington, D.C. It's what affects everybody down at the street level in everybody's neighborhood, and it makes a huge, huge difference in every aspect of our life. So... If we think, because every time I've talked to somebody who says, well, we shouldn't be involved in politics, it's so nasty, it's so horrible, immediately they start talking about what's going on in Washington. But politics and being involved as a politically responsible citizen really builds from the bottom up, from local politics and administration up to the top. So when we look at this topic... I want to start by looking at a verse in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul says, Therefore, reaching a conclusion, 
having dealt with many things that were doubtful. Remember, this is a passage that uh, deals with doubtful things in Corinth, whether you should eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols or not. So there's a lot of question on these things as to whether or not a Christian should or should not participate in them. His conclusion is, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, what activity in your life or my life is is the exception to the phrase, whatever you do. Nothing. That covers everything we do. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We can't uh, escape the universality of the word whatever or the term all. And the examples that Paul is giving here are eating and drinking. I'm sure you can probably think of a more everyday mundane example, but since we're in mixed company, we'll just talk about these basic things that everybody does every day. We eat, we drink, and those are choices. We choose what we eat, we choose what we drink, when we eat, when we drink. And what Paul is saying is down to the everyday mundane activities, we're to do that in the best way we can that will bring glory to God. So, that's the starting point. Everything we do, that means, that relates to everything. It relates to being a student. It relates to being an employee or an employer, a supervisor, a manager, an administrator, a senator, a representative, a judge. It relates to every sphere of life that the ultimate ultimate criterion is that we do this to the glory of God. So, that's point one. Point two is, and this is a summary from a website. You can just search on the term um, U.S. citizenship responsibilities and you'll discover it. This is uh, uh, the United States, uh, I forget the whole title, but it's Customs and Immigration Service, I believe. And our citizen, excuse me, it's United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. So this is an official government website. Now what's important there is this is the Citizenship Service and they are t- defining what the rights and responsibilities of U.S. citizens are supposed to be for those who come as immigrants and want to enter into the country and become a citizen. And it should remind us who were born as citizens what our responsibilities are. Everyone born in this city, in this country, or who has become naturalized as a citizen of this country has these rights and responsibilities. Every citizen has uh, responsibility, uh, certain rights that are guaranteed and recognized by the Bill of Rights. They're not given by the Bill of Rights. They are recognized to be ours, endowed by our Creator with these rights. And according to this website... These responsibilities are to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Notice I didn't say anything about hope and change. We are to support and defend it. That doesn't mean we can't change it, but we have to change it according to law. And the Constitution has within it the way to properly legally change it. There are different ways to do that and to amend it, but it is... Uh, to be defended and supported. We are to stay informed about the issues affecting our community. Every citizen, that's your responsibility, to stay informed about the issues affecting your community, to participate in the democratic process. At the very least, that means going to the polls and voting. Now, different people are at different stages in life. Some folks are retired, they have a lot more time on their hands. Some people are younger and they've got five or six kids and they have no time on their hands. Other people are somewhere in between. And depending on where you are in life, you have the opportunity to be more or less involved in that democratic process. In, what is it, three weeks? Through two weeks, we're going to vote at the primary. When you go to the primary, when you go and you vote, Following the election, at the close of the polls that night, there are going to be precinct meetings. 
for the Democrat Party and for the Republican Party, and I guess maybe some other parties might have precinct meetings. And at those meetings, they will choose uh, uh, delegates to go to the state convention. Several years ago, maybe it was 10 years ago now, I talked about this and encouraged people. In fact, we didn't have Bible class that night. We will have Bible class. But if you want to go attend your precinct meeting that night, I encourage you to do that. Uh, There were quite a few people I heard from after that who went and became delegates to the state convention. We went that night, and then we we found out that our precinct had the uh, right to send 22 delegates. That meant that all 12 people who were at the meeting could go as a delegate. 12 people showed up for that precinct meeting. And we needed to be able to send at least 23 people to the state convention. So what that tells me is that everybody who's here, if you go to your precinct meeting that night, there's probably a 100% chance that you can get chosen to be a delegate to the state convention. And that's what happened. Or it's the next, it's not the state convention, it's the Senate based on Senate district, and then it goes to state. But I didn't get to go beyond that because the Senate district meeting was when I was taking my first or second trip to Israel. So was was, uh, out of the country. But that's the responsibility, and you can have an impact. In fact, I heard from probably a dozen people around the state who heard me say this on the live stream, and they went to their uh, precinct meetings and became a delegate to the next level up. And so that's an opportunity to be involved. So we are to be responsible, to be involved in the democratic process, respect and obey federal, state, and local laws, respect the rights, beliefs, and opinions of others, participate in your local community, pay income and other taxes honestly and on time, serve on a jury when called upon, defend the country if the need should arise. Now, some of these duties are legal requirements. Some are specifically stated biblically to be mandated for for every Christian. But all are nevertheless obligations. Somebody may say, well, I don't see anywhere in any of the legal documents that I'm required to vote. That's right. That's because it is a free country. You can choose not to vote. If it was mandated, it wouldn't be a free country. That's part of freedom, is to give you the responsibility to participate or not. But as a Christian, we're to do everything to the glory of God. As a a Christian citizen, we're to understand what our biblical, excuse me, what our citizenship responsibilities are supposed to be, and then we should fulfill them to the best of our ability, depending on where we are in life at that particular time. Now, this is going to be a critical election. We have people from outside this country who seek to destroy the Constitution of this country, who are promoting radicalism, Marxism, and socialism, and pouring millions of dollars into this state in order to turn it from a red state to a blue state. And not just this state, but many other states trying to influence foreign money, not American money and to also fund many of the radical activities that you see taking place around demonstrations and other things like that. And what broke news this morning, I don't know if you saw it, but that uh, the day after uh, President Trump was elected uh, in November of 2016, there were these enormous demonstrations that took place in Washington, D.C. and in New York. And it turns out now that these were, were funded and promoted by by Russian operatives. And yet, if you watched NBC and ABC and MSNBC, they were just talking about how praiseworthy all of these people were who were making all of these horrible statements about uh, Donald Trump at the time, President-elect Trump. And so this is why this election is so important, is because there is so much at stake and all this evil money coming in to change this from its historic constitutional base. So the second point that I was talking about is just the 
obligations that we have as citizens and that we should fulfill those responsibilities to the best of our ability. Third point is, therefore, a conclusion to those two points, every Christian should excel in the exercise of these responsibilities as part of his overall lifestyle witness. We witness with our lives, we witness with our lips. And when I was growing up, citizenship was one of the categories on a kid's report card that you were evaluated on. And you were taught to take care of certain things, uh, picking up trash in the classroom, whatever it was, how you uh, uh, comported yourself during the Pledge of Allegiance and singing the National Anthem. Of course, in Texas, after 61, when uh, John Wayne's Battle of the Alamo came out, in my sixth grade class, we sang uh, the ballad of the Alamo for that film every morning for the rest of the school year. So that's what Texans used to do. And we'd get holidays for March 2nd for Texas Independence Day and a holiday for April 21st, which was San Jacinto Day. And Texans actually could remember those dates because we had we had holidays. So we recognized that citizenship was significant and important. And so a Christian citizenship should be at should live their life as citizens at least as well as the average unbeliever performs his duties. I think that's a pretty low bar, frankly. Uh, We need to raise that. Only by being a responsible, informed, educated uh, citizen can we glorify God in that area of our life. Fourth point is that Scripture mandates some of these responsibilities uh, for every believer. We are to pay taxes as Scripture demands, Matthew twenty two, twenty one, and Romans thirteen six through seven. Uh, Matthew twenty two twenty one, we're to render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. And if you think the IRS is unjust, what do you think the Roman system was? So Jesus isn't saying don't pay your taxes unless it's a just system, and I've heard Christians try to argue that. Well, it's not fair. It's not just. I shouldn't pay it. Hmm. I don't think Jesus would go along with that. It was extremely unjust under the Roman Empire. They would they would pay tax collectors. They would say, this is how much you're going to get from what you take up. Anything you take up over that, you get to keep. That does not promote integrity of uh, taxation. So... This is every believer is responsible to pay taxes. We're responsible to be informed and responsible uh, members of our community, our city, our, our town, our state, our nation, because that is all uh, related to the command to love your neighbor as yourself. If we believe that what we believe is true and that it will produce a stable, prosperous nation, then to not vote is not loving your neighbor. Voting for the kind of leaders that will implement policies that will lead to a protected, secure, stable, prosperous nation is part of what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor is not qualified by believer or unbeliever. That's part of our responsibility uh, under that uh, mandate, and that's originally from Leviticus, but it's quoted three times in the New Testament in Romans 13.9, Galatians 5.14, and James 2.8. Just think about this. You all know this. You're homeowners. You live in a neighborhood. If you did not keep up your property, your homeowner association would probably be sending you pictures and saying things about it, but if you didn't keep up your property, One of the results of that is that it would devalue, if you were really a a slob and and really let things run down, it would devalue the property of your neighbors. That's not loving your neighbor. Okay? So how we take care of our property, take care of our homes, all of this is just a manifestation of what it means to love our neighbors and to be good citizens. So that a citizen who votes for corrupt, self-serving leaders is not contributing to the security, the prosperity, and the stability of a nation, and therefore is not loving his neighbor. But a citizen who uh, who votes 
for candidates who support the Constitution and the rule of law as loving his neighbor. Now, we're reminded in Scripture, on a fifth point, that God instituted human government. It isn't something that developed by evolution. It was something that was uh, instituted by God in Genesis 9, 6. But practically, as I pointed out earlier, as people got together, they had to decide how to take care of these community things, things related to uh, protecting the uh, community from uh, criminals and protecting from outside enemies. You can think about what it was like on the American frontier, especially in areas like New York and Ohio and Pennsylvania, further down the coast along the Appalachians during the time of the French and Indian Wars. And people would come together and they would have a small a small town and then they would erect a barricade or fortifications around the town so that those who lived outside the village could flee there in the event of attacks by, uh, <clears throat> by Indians and thereby they could protect one another. That is part of uh, what a community does. And so you have to decide who's going to pay for that, who's going to do it. That's all part of the responsibility of voting. We dare not be uh, community pacifists because that's exactly what that is. A sixth point is that every nation has, different, has a different form of government. Some are monarchies, some are dictatorships. Uh, there are various kinds. Some are like the United States or attempt to be uh, democracies in the sense that citizens vote, but the U.S. is not really a democracy. It's a representative republic. And we are expected to participate as Christian uh, citizens. This is part of obeying the authority set over you. What's the ultimate authority set over us in this country? It's the Constitution. Now, the Constitution doesn't say go out and vote, but it's implied because it set up the government as a self-governing body that is that runs on the basis of people, people voting. So passages such as Romans 13, 1 through 3, and 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17 reinforce the idea that we are to obey the authority set over us. And so that, again, reinforces the idea that we should be involved, informed, uh, participating citizens, especially when we vote. Now, the seventh point I have relates to an objection I've heard, and that is that as Christians, we're citizens of heaven. That's true. Paul talks about that, that our citizenship ultimately is in heaven, but that's not that does not exclude our earthly citizenship. Paul was a Roman citizen. Paul, uh, Paul used his privileges as a Roman citizen on numerous occasions. Uh, for example, in Philippi, when he and Silas are thrown into jail, they're beaten and they're flogged. He didn't say anything then, but the next day he brings it home to the magistrates and he says, how dare you uh, whip a Roman citizen? That was illegal. And that scared them to death that they had whipped a Roman citizen. So the fact that uh, we are, have our citizenship in heaven does, is not mutually exclusive of our citizenship here on earth. In fact, the two must work together. Paul was an obedient Roman citizen unless it conflicted directly with God's revealed will. And he clearly availed himself of those privileges on numerous occasions. An eighth point is that Scripture commands Christians to pray for governing leaders and for kings in 1 Timothy 2, 2-3. Now, why is it in that passage that we are to pray for our leaders? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses uh, 2 and 3. Let me read it to you. For I'll start with verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving. He's used just about every synonym for prayer that he can think of. And he says that they be made on behalf of all men. For, that's the first category, all mankind, for kings and all who are in authority. That's everybody from city councils, local school board, all the way up to the president. For kings and all who are in authority, why? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 
Well, let me give you an analogy. Let's say you live in a house and you've got a nice yard, grass is growing, spring has sprung, and you start saying, that needs to be cut, I'm going to pray about it. Now, if you're confined to a wheelchair and you can't go out there and cut it yourself, then that's pretty much all you can do is pray for it. That, by analogy, would be somebody who's a citizen of a country where you can't vote, you can't do anything. You don't have any, you're not in a self-governing environment. And, and so all you can do is pray for the country. And that might have applied at some times in the Roman Empire. But if you're a citizen of the United States, you're like most of us, you're not only praying that the grass will get cut, when the opportunity presents, you're going to go start the lawnmower and you're going to cut the grass or you're going to pay someone to cut the grass, but you're going to be involved actively in that process because God also answers prayer indirectly. You pray for your health and you go to a doctor. You know that God can heal you uh, intermediately through the doctor. You have cancer, you pray the, doc the doctor will heal you and you go to MD Anderson and the, through, I mean, you pray that God will heal you. You go to MD Anderson and God works through the skills of the surgeons there and you can, you can be healed. And so when we pray for our uh, leaders that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life and we have the opportunity to choose those leaders, then we should choose leaders who will make that possible. That as Christians, we will be able to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That we can meet together without fear of government interference that we can evangelize without being uh, threatened and taken to jail, that we can be on a college or university campus and we can clearly and openly teach the truth of Christianity without fear of the political, political correct police coming and uh, kicking us out of school. That's what freedom is. So if we are going to be able to participate in choosing leaders that will allow us to lead a stable, peaceable life so that we can worship freely and evangelize freely, then we should be involved in the voting process. If we are passive and we don't vote, then we're going to be steamrolled by those who wish to destroy the influence of Christianity in our society and in our culture. And as a ninth point, in Philippians chapter 2, we are told, we'll turn there, Paul is uh, challenging his readers. And in Philippians chapter 2, he says, it starts off, I don't like this command. If I had a razor, I might remove it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. But the next verse is the important one. So that so that you will prove or demonstrate yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, of God above reproach. So see, we're to live above reproach. That means nobody can blame us for anything. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So part of our lifestyle ministry in a society is that we are to be lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, and light has an impact on that around it. And that means that voting is one way we perform as lights. And then the tenth point is, Bible teaches something called stewardship. Stewardship is that God gives us certain things. He gives us money, he gives us gifts, he gives us talents, he gives us the Word of God, he gives us the all the good teaching related to the Word of God, and we're going to be held accountable for how we use that. What we have been given to us in our generation in terms of the freedoms that have been passed down from previous generation as understood and interpreted within the Constitution are our responsibility, that's our stewardship in terms of our citizenship, to pass that on to the next generation. A failure to vote, a failure to be involved when the battle is enjoined, 
is to guarantee that your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren will not have the freedoms and the privileges that we enjoy. So it is part of our stewardship responsibility for which we will be held accountable. So for those 10 reasons, we need to be involved in the political process. We need to be involved in being educated. This is one reason that I brought two people over the last, uh, last month. Last month, I brought Dan Crenshaw, who's running for the seat in this. We're in his district, District 2. We've also brought in Kathleen Wall to speak to the men's group. I think Dan's uh, presentation here is up on the uh, up on the internet. She asked that hers not be put up because she said some things that were really personal and she did that she didn't want to be public knowledge and so she's going to have it edited and put up on her website and so you can watch it uh, watch it there to see how she, she handled uh, questions. There are others who are running in the race that, that I didn't have a chance to meet or talk to that I'm sure would probably uh, as I've looked at uh, the statements and sayings of several who are running uh, they all seem to be pretty strong con constitutional conservatives who want to do the right thing. So we have to make a decision as to who can get elected, who can beat the opposing side in the election next year, and who can get the job done. Because I think they all basically will do the same job, vote the same way. It's who is it that will do the best job and is the most prepared and things of that nature. And that's for each of us to decide on our on our own but we need to be involved in this and not miss it uh, early voting began today and goes as I said through this week and on into next week well you may think that that did not have much to do with what we're studying in Samuel but it actually does so turn now in your Bibles to 2nd Samuel chapter 5 2nd Samuel chapter 5 and 2nd Ch Samuel chapter 5 we see David as the king, becoming the king over the united kingdom as the ten northern tribes come to him and uh, re to recognize him as their king as well. And in this process, there's reference to some concepts that are critical for leadership, national leadership, church leadership, and even leadership in, uh, in the home. What we have seen in our background study here is that there's a prophecy in Genesis 49.10 from Jacob to Judah, his son. Judah was not the picture of spiritual maturity. He has demonstrated that he's pretty much living a life like a pagan of that, those times, not too different from the Canaanites. And God in his grace still has a plan for his life. And part of that plan is that his descendants would produce a line of kings that would rule over Israel. And that is prophesied in Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Now, David is a descendant of Judah. He's of the tribe of Judah. And as we Realize or discovered at the beginning of Second Samuel, he becomes the king first from the tribe of Judah, becomes the king over Hebron in the south for seven and a half years, and God has promised to make him king over Israel and Judah, over the all twelve tribes of Israel, and that's the thrust of much of Second Samuel. The first. Uh, from chapter 2 to chapter 10, we're going to see how God blesses David as he unites and expands the kingdom. Starting in chapter 5, we see the expansion of the kingdom. And uh, the second division, we're going to see David's failures and how God disciplines him for his sins, but he doesn't remove him from his plan, and God is still going to bless him because David is still, even though he's committed these sins, he's still a man after God's heart. And then in the last part of the book, chapters 21 to 24, there are these six different episodes that occurred during David's reign that demonstrate the greatness of the Davidic covenant, God's promise to David. So we looked at the first part in ch chapters 2 through 10. We looked at the first part, the beginning of David's kingdom in 2 Samuel 2, 1 to 4, 12. 
And today in chapter 5, we're going to see David, that God gives David control over Jerusalem in 5, 1 through 25. Chapter 5 is the story of how David captures Jerusalem and will make it the capital of Israel. Have you heard that term lately? Now let me see. In 1000 B.C., David made Jerusalem the capital of Israel. I don't think Muhammad was around then. I don't think there were any Palestinians that were around then. I don't think there were any, there were a few Arabs that were around, but that's because they're descendants of Ishmael, but they're not anything like what we see today. They were, they they basically became polytheists during this time, although there were a few that continued to worship the God of Abraham and Isaac. So God is going to give control over to David. That's the thrust of this chapter, but we won't get far out of the first verse. We read in the first five verses, then all the tribes of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, because David is already king over the southern kingdom, which is Judah, and Benjamin is sort of considered, it sort of gets swallowed up into Judah. But that's, uh, you have the ten tribes of the north, and Benjamin and Judah are considered uh, part, mostly the same tribe in the south. Uh, all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also, in times past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. This is all about leadership. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them all at, Heb- at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Now this gives you a little geography. Here's the Dead Sea over here, the Mediterranean Sea over here. The Jordan River runs from north to south into the Dead Sea. And this is a distance of about 40 miles from the Dead Sea to Jerusalem. Early on, it was called Salem. It is inhabited by a group of Canaanites called the Jebusites, and they control Jerusalem at this point. It's not and was hasn't been conquered in the conquest. This is what David is going to do later in this chapter. He's from Bethlehem, which is about six or seven miles to the south of, of Jerusalem, and then. Uh, we see some of the other action that takes place around here, but on this slide I want to also point out Hebron, which is probably about 30 miles south of Jerusalem down at the heart of the tribal area that was was given uh, to Judah. So when we look at the beginning here, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. So the first thing that they recognize that is a unifying factor in the nation is this term, you are, uh, we are your bone and your flesh. This is a, a, an interesting term. What we find in Scripture is that the highest organic union that we have in Scripture, the highest union of people that we find is the family. Family is the third divine institution. Israel wasn't just a, wasn't just a nation; it was a family. It is Israel was a title that was given by God to Jacob, and that all the Israelites are descendants of Jacob's twelve sons. It's a family. And so that's what is being emphasized here, that they have this organic union, and no matter what tribe they come from, they're all united by family, and it's not a political organization, which is what we have in the United States because we're just such a melting pot, but it has an organic unity because they they are all related. We see the use of this phrase in passages such as Genesis 2.23, 
when Adam has brought the woman that God has taken from his side, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We have an organic unity. She is part of me. We are of the same substance. That is the first time we have this phrase. Later on, we see it in relation to the family of the patriarchs. Laban is uh, the uncle uh, to Jacob, and Jacob has gone north to live with Laban for a while and marries uh, two of his daughters, Rachel and Leah. And Laban says to him in Genesis twenty nine fourteen, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. When he came to him for work, he is accepted because they're family. They are related, okay? Judges, chapter 9, verse 2. This is that weird episode that comes after Gideon's victory. Gideon's victory over the Midianites where he defeats them with the 300 men. God said, you've got 31,000, that's too many. Call it down, call it down again until he gets down to 300. He says, okay, now you've got enough to go after 130,000. God said, 300 makes it clear it's me and it's not you. After Gideon won that battle, he was offered the kingship by the people. He said, no, 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 no. I'm too good. I'm too humble. I'm not arrogant. I'm not going to be the king. And so he didn't accept it. Then he made an ephod. Okay, an ephod was a priestly garment. And he made it and set it up to be worshipped as an idol. So he leads the people into idolatry. After he's had this great victory, he just turns around and just plunges into total carnality and paganism, and he sets him, takes him back into idolatry. Then he had multiple wives, and he had lots of sons, but he had one son from the wrong side of the sheets, and his name was Abimelech. And Abimelech kills his brothers. And uh, they're referenced here in this verse, but later on in the chapter, he'll kill all of them. But he goes to the men of Shechem, and he says to the men of Shechem, who are living there, he says, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam, that's another name for Gideon, reign over you, or that one reign over you? Remember, I'm your flesh and bone. I'm your relative. We've got an, we're, we're, we're family. We have to stick together. That's his argument. Then the next time we run into it is a passage we're studying, but one more time in 2 Samuel, after the Absalom rebellion, when David comes back to Jerusalem and he's met by the elders of Judah, he says to those elders of Judah, you're my brethren, you're my bone and my flesh. We're family, we're, we're from the same tribe. Why didn't you stick by me during this rebellion of Absalom? Why are you the last to bring back the king? So it's pretty clear that this phrase, and I could go to a number of other examples coming up later in the Old Testament, but the phrase always refers to this organic, close family unity. We find it one more time. I had never noticed this before because I didn't do a search of this concept from the beginning. We can't go to the New Testament and find a phrase like this, bone and you are my bone and my flesh, if we divorce it from how it's been used. You have a pretty good idea now how this is used. It's talking about a close, close, organic family unity. Guess where we find it in the New Testament? Ephesians 5.30. For we as believers are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Now, don't you have a whole new concept of what it means to be part of the body of Christ, of his flesh and his bones, than you had before? We have an organic unity in the body of Christ as fellow believers. We're not just a bunch of atomized parts, just different individual believers scattered around. We are organically connected to one another. As Paul says in other places, we're members of one another. That's why we're to pray for one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to strengthen one another. We're to uh, do, teach one another, encourage, admonish. All these different terms are used because we are members of one family, and that's the body of Christ. So this shows that this term is emphasizing this organic unity, and for that reason, that's the first thing 
that they point out is we've got an organic unity with you, and so we need to make you king. Now, the second thing that they're going to emphasize is David's leadership history, his leadership history. They recognize that David was the functional leader under Saul, that he's the one who provided security for the nation, and he was the one who eventually had been chosen by God to be the next king. And so what we read in 5.2 is this. Also, in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. Now, that's a military idiom, is you took the army out and you won the wars and you brought them home. That's what that's talking about. It's talking about his military leadership to provide security for the nation from external enemies. That is one of the primary responsibilities of a king, of a, of a national leadership, is to provide uh, security from foreign enemies. And that relates to border security because the borders of every nation have been established by God according to Acts chapter uh, 17. God separated every nation for its borders. We'll talk about that later, but that's important. And so when we have a president that wants to emphasize border security and we have different people in Congress who don't, guess who we need to get rid of? We need to get rid of everybody who doesn't want to secure the borders. It has nothing to do with being anti-immigration. This nation has never been anti-immigration, but it's never had porous borders like the people want today. They want a country without borders. And that's never been true of this country. No, but I've never heard anybody point this out. They, they always point out we're a nation of immigrants. How many times do we hear that? Ad infinitum ad nauseum. We're a nation of immigrants, yes, but we were never a nation without borders. And we defended our borders. And we provided security against enemies, foreign as well as domestic. So that was part of David's, what David had done as Saul's envoy leading the military. And then they recognize that God had chosen David to be their king. And they say it this way. They said, the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Now, I'm just going to point out a couple of things here, and then we're going to close. First of all, it doesn't come across in English, but in Hebrew, the normal word order is verb and then noun. So you say the verb and then you say the subject of the verb. When you set, put the subject first, you're emphasizing it. And that's what happens in the structure here. You were the one who led Israel out. They're emphasizing that it is you, David. You uniquely did that. And why? Because the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people, you shall rule over them, emphasizing you that David is the one to whom God was delegating this responsibility and the one God anointed. And so that brings us to our focus on leadership, shepherding, a metaphor that's used throughout the Old Testament and is carried through into the New Testament related to leadership functioning. When I was in Kiev this year, it was Christmas. The reason we had Christmas on January 7th there is because uh, the Russian community, all the former Russian states and Russian-influenced states and Russia, under Russian, the Russian Orthodox Church did not change to, from the uh, Julian calendar, named for Julius Caesar, to the Gregorian calendar until the late 1700s, and the Orthodox Church didn't change at all. So they still celebrate the birth of Jesus on December 25th, but because there's a 13-day uh, difference between the old, old calendar and the new calendar, on the old calendar, December 25th falls on January 7th. Okay, so it's a 13-day difference. So New Year's, January 1st on the old calendar, falls a week after that. So this year I got to have two Christmases and two New Year's. That happen At least I get two New Year's a lot anyway. So um, uh, when, you, when you... I forgot where I was going with that. Um, when you have... Uh, 
I just t totally lost lost that whole thought. So anyway, so what we have is this emphasis on on leadership and responsibility, and we'll come back and talk about that uh, next next time and develop out this whole development of of leadership and why being shy. I know what I was getting at. So when I went over there, I was teaching on Luke two and the shepherds. And so many things that you read talking about the shepherds that came to worship Jesus say, this is why they came, is they were the lowest rung in society. Everybody had a bad view of shepherds. Nobody, if you saw a shepherd coming towards you, you'd walk to the other side of the street. And you'll hear that and read that in a lot of scholarly commentaries and all kinds of things. The problem with that is there's never a bad thing said about shepherds per se in the scripture. There are evil shepherds, but shepherds is uh, the shepherd metaphor is always used as a metaphor for leadership and uh, authority in the scripture. So it's always a good thing. It's never used to represent the lowest echelon of society, the poorest of the poor, and that kind of thing. And that just wasn't true. So there's your little point to go correct your Christmas story. So we're going to study about shepherds coming back next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study. We pray that in our responsibilities as citizens that we may be able to elect good shepherds, shepherds who have integrity, uh, shepherds who are skillful in their thinking and in their lives, who can lead us properly according to the foundation of our Constitution and our laws, that we may continue the traditions of our forefathers, emphasizing the importance of the Bible and biblical Christianity to have a stable and productive society. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.